Hello again, and welcome to Knowing God with Heart and Mind, the virtual Bible study, virtual church classroom podcast presented as an outreach of the Shiloh United Methodist Church in Jasper, Indiana, and yours truly, Pastor Dan Sinkhorn. It is my pleasure to serve you each week with this particular offering. It is a class that is not meant to take the place of anything you do in the way of Christian interaction with other believers at your church and other Christian fellowships. I hope you are participating regularly in church worship and that you are participating with other Christians in small groups and Bible studies and Sunday school classes and all that sort of thing. This is a supplement. This is for those who have uh, not don't always have the opportunity to listen to or participate in such a thing uh, on campus whenever they want to. So this is this is a backup plan. This is for those who, like me, really enjoy listening to podcasts. I listen to lots of them, and uh, I used to be quite the radiophile uh, back in the day. You know, when I was young, I was always listening to the radio, and I'm still quite a fan of old-time radio shows that I listen to from the Internet all the time. So as a kind of radio geek, this just seems like a logical ministry for me to uh, participate in. So welcome to our virtual classroom and our study, which right now is based in the program created by the Cokesbury folks and written by J. Ellsworth Callis called Christian Believer. It is a study of Christian doctrine that basically follows the Nicene Creed, and we are in session 11 right now, session 11, and uh, we're going to be talking today about salvation, just what the meaning of salvation is. But first, let's take a moment to check in with time and uh, see how we are as a community of believers in the world. Well, I know this is a one-way conversation, but I trust that you are uh, enjoying life and that things are going along for you as they should. I try to imagine you as I create this podcast, and some of you I know very well. I've known you in churches where I've served and in the church that I serve now, and uh, some of you I don't know, and uh, not that I wouldn't like to know you. But I know we all have certain things in common, especially as believers. I know, for example, that this last week, uh, we believers have been tempted to wonder if we are not living in the last days before the return of Christ. Now, we've probably been tempted by everything from wars and rumors of war and uh, the word of, of fires and storms and earthquakes and suffering all around the world. And uh, we've probably even been tempted by some of the rumors going around that perhaps last Saturday, September 23rd, was uh, a pivotal event in human history. And yet it came and went, and we can't tell that anything is different. So I know that all of us who consider ourselves faithful followers of Jesus Christ as his disciples, we find opportunities to scratch our heads and wonder about things. And uh, it is simply a mystery. 
And when we speak of mystery in Christendom, we need to clarify that in terms of that which cannot be explained, which doesn't make it less valid. It just means that it's a real thing that we can't adequately explain, like the Trinity, let's say. Now, that's different from, say, a mystery that waits to be solved, like uh, one of those whodunit shows or books that are so common and popular. So we accept that while we have been given ample information to guide our Christian living and give us the ability to not be caught off guard by the turning of events, we have also been given more than enough opportunity to live in faith. And so in faith, we accept what we cannot explain, like the mystery of the Trinity. And in this case, the mystery of exactly what Jesus means when he says, no one knows the time or uh, the, the sequence except for the Father himself, God above. And uh, Jesus says that uh, about that hour, we cannot know, but there will be signs, there will be indications that it is near. And so we can agree as Christians that something's brewing, Something's looking uh, a little bit like some of the signs that we were told to anticipate. But as Christians, we also know that this is not the first time in human history when things looked pretty dire and things looked pretty uh, particularly in alignment with Scripture. And much of it has to do with our ability to interpret Scripture which always improves as time goes by. We have in the world of uh, Bible believers a sort of um, um, collective or accumulated knowledge of things. And what really is amazing is, is we build on the knowledge and the scholarship of the rabbis who gave us the Old Testament and the scholars and authors of the various New Testament writings and uh, and those who interpret them to us and translate them for us. And throughout all the centuries, there's been this buildup of solid information and this systematic dismissal of inappropriate information and what some people might even call heretical or somehow uh, not right with the Spirit of God and the Spirit's influence over Scripture. So, you know, we find ourselves living in curious times and uh, we find ourselves drawing nearer to our Lord because all these things simply make us depend on God all the more for our deliverance. And here we are then back to the topic of salvation. So before we begin this uh, conversation about salvation, let's take a moment to pray. Holy God, thank you for this opportunity, this beautiful time of shared learning and understanding. For though I record it on one day and others listen to it on another day and at different times and places and perhaps even months or years after its recording, your timing is perfect and you are always present in this activity. And we see in this yet another means of your grace, another way that you have reached out to us in grace and offered your uh, presence in some form or another, even if it's just my voice uh, 
and the work of my hands. It becomes, with your help, the work of a grace and love that is beyond this human person. Thank you, Lord. Now, bless your hearers. Bless them physically. Bless them spiritually, mentally. Help them to benefit from this in a way that draws them nearer to you so that they might join me in singing your praises and glorifying you. Amen. Well, the topic today is salvation. Salvation is uh, a word that uh, is, is common, or I should say a concept in, in the Bible that is quite common throughout the Bible. It's kind of what the whole thing is written over. Um, it, it could be said that the Bible is nothing other than the salvation history. Um, but there are different forms of salvation that are described in the Bible. And so when we talk today about the doctrine of salvation, what do we mean? Because in the Old Testament, we see military deliverance. We see uh, individuals who or nations who receive spiritual salvation. You know, there are various forms of salvation, but they all have one thing in common. And that common thing is, is that in order for salvation to occur, there have to be at least two parties. There is the one who is in grave danger and uh, will be lost without the one who reaches out to save. And so the first and most significant learning about salvation is that there is a victim or a uh, person or being who is in danger of, of being lost, and there is one who will save. And uh, with that in mind, let's talk more about this term salvation. Salvation is, uh, is literally a word that means to, to snatch someone away from certain destruction. You know, um, it literally means that if a person is found, uh, finds themselves stranded in the middle of floodwaters, let's say, like they have been in places like Texas and, and uh, Florida and the Bahamas and places like that, and another person comes along and plucks them from uh, the, the waters before they're overwhelmed and drowned, then they've been saved. And so we can think of this term in those literal ways. But when we talk about the concept of salvation as a doctrine, in our Christian believing, uh, we're talking about something that uh, the scholars, uh, the people who go to seminaries and places like that, refer to as soteriology. Soteriology. Now, you understand, I'm sure, that most any word that ends with ology is a word that ends with the study of. And so psychology is the study of the mind. And uh, for that reason, you can assume that soteriology is a study of and soterio, uh, so, <laughs> so te I don't even use this word, so you can tell I don't know how to pronounce it apart from ology. Anyway, soteriology, it's a word that means the understanding of our salvation. Uh, I'll leave it to people who have a better command of, uh, of uh, these kinds of words than me 
to explain that. But soteriology then is our understanding of how it is that we are saved in the spiritual sense and as it relates to our relationship with God. The understanding is that we're lost and that someone has to find us. The understanding is is that we can't save ourselves. Someone has to redeem us. We are in a condition that is certain to cause us to suffer, and the only way that we can change that is to be regenerated or made new in some way. The people of God, the, uh, the nation of Israel, the church, they're all a people who have, throughout the Bible's description of history, been saved by God in one way or another. And uh, we think of this, um, this transformative power of salvation as a new birth and uh, a kind of adoption or conversion. So these are all terms that sort of express the uh, idea of salvation. So once we've gotten our minds wrapped around the fact that salvation is something that is needed for us to get out of a situation that is certain to destroy us, then we can accept that if we're not able to get ourselves out of that situation, We're going to need somebody else to do it for us. Now, this is a a kind of of concept that hopefully became clear to you in your scripture reading this week. Um, For example, when you read in Numbers chapter 21 about the people being uh, assaulted by these serpents and uh, this this, uh, particular pattern that they had fallen into uh, of turning away from God and uh, really, you know, desiring to go back to Egypt and go back to slavery. And, and then God lets bad things happen to them. In this case, these poisonous snakes that uh, were killing them left and right. And the salvation came as a bronze symbol was raised up on a pole by Moses and Aaron. And the people looked to it for salvation. And by looking to it, they were saved from this situation. And uh, how fascinating it is to think that as long ago as that, the idea that you would look to a symbol of your suffering raised up on a pole or a stake or a cross and thereby receive your salvation. It's already there, all those years before Jesus did it for us. You read in Psalms 33 that uh, the Lord is our help and shield. In In Psalm 68, that God's power is the source of our victory. You read in Isaiah 12 that God is the source of salvation. And uh, that God invites in Isaiah 55 us into life, that the consequences of sin and disrespect for God and the nature of things in this fallen world is death, but God invites us into life. And so he's created a way of life amidst death. And if that's not a way of describing salvation, I don't know what is. Then you read in Luke chapter 15 that... uh, There is great joy in heaven when a sinner repents and accepts that gift of salvation. 
And uh, we read in Acts chapter 10 that there's no partiality in that. It's simply that we are all guilty by the same ultimate cause and we are all redeemed or saved by the same ultimate deliverer, Jesus Christ. We read in Romans 5 that uh, Christ is the source of that reconciliation. We read in Hebrews that Christ is the pioneer of our salvation. I love that. There's a sense that, that no one came before him, and therefore the salvation he gives is the first of its kind, and it comes from Jesus. And then we read in Hebrews, uh, excuse me, in, in uh well, I already told you that. Hebrews says he's the pioneer of our salvation. So, you know, your scripture readings have been uh, a little, probably easier this time than they were uh, in some of the previous weeks for, for us to see the very specific message that God has for us. And uh, it's kind of, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, nice when you can just read the scripture and you begin to get the picture even as you're reading scripture. Um, it's sort of like when you're watching a good show that you really like and the plot becomes clear and you begin to see where it's going well into the thing and uh, you're tracking with the creators and the writers and the directors and it just, it just gives you a great sense of satisfaction. And uh, so first let's talk about this salvation um, through a nation. Now, there is in this uh, story or narrative about uh, salvation for Israel as a nation and, and ultimately our salvation, it, there is this principal character named Abraham. It starts in that early time at the beginning of your Bible, not long after we hear of Adam and Eve and all of that. Uh, we hear of Abraham being called by God to go and become this nation through whom God would work God's will for the sake of the world, a chosen people. Now, this concept starts with the question, I think, why Abraham? You know, did God just throw a dart and it hit Abraham? And he said, okay, that's the guy. Or was it something else? Well, I've often felt and tried to share this idea with others that what you read in scripture after you've studied its stories is you begin to read and understand the very mind of God. In other words, through God's story, we begin to understand more about God than just what's written there. We begin to understand the very personality of God. And so in the same way that a husband or wife who've known this person for decades that they live with could easily tell you what they would probably say or do, uh, in the same way that if you've listened to, say, Pastor Dan preach or teach week in and week out, and then someone comes along and says, you know, I heard that he said this, you'd know right away because of your familiarity with my personality, whether or not that was probably true. And uh, so in the same way, we can understand how God operates because we have studied scripture at length and we've come to know the personality of God. Now, the reason I'm sharing that with you is because if you really try to understand the personality of God, one of the things that becomes apparent to you is that God's not random. God doesn't just throw a dart and say, well, looks like we're starting with Abraham. No, I, and, and it would have been Abram by the, at that time, but anyway, uh, <laughs> so 
what really happened? Well, what usually happens in God's interactions with people is God calls and someone answers. God seeks a person of faith and someone responds. And so I think in the case of the nation that would be called Israel one day and the source of our salvation, uh, Jesus, then I think it's really just a matter of who answered when God called. You know, we talked about grace last week. And we kind of decided that while there's just one grace, there are different ways that grace is experienced. And in, in this case, this is a, a kind of prevenient grace. It's God reaching out to the world that has rejected him and saying, I need someone to join me in what I'm doing. And Abraham said, I, I'll go with you. And maybe there were others who heard the call but denied it even while there were others who didn't even hear it. Now, I may have said this to you in the past on this show, but uh, this is where I always come back to that image of a bank of telephones in a place like Grand Central Station. Now, you young people with your cell phones are not going to understand this because there was a day not that long ago when we didn't carry little phones around in our pockets. If you needed to call somebody, you had to find the nearest payphone, drop a nickel or a dime or a quarter in it and uh, start talking. And uh, in those days, places like uh, hotels and uh, uh, airports and train stations, they always had places where there were, you know, six or eight or 10 or 12 phones all in a row on a wall. And one of the things the disc jockeys used to do back in those days is dial a number that someone had given them for one of those phones that's ring, uh, that would ring in a place like Grand Central Station or a big airport. And uh, as people would walk by, busy with their lives, there would be this phone ringing. And sooner or later, somebody would pick it up and answer it. And then the disc jockey in Des Moines, Iowa, would suddenly find himself in a conversation with somebody at Grand Central Station in New York City. And it was great fun. And I'm telling you that because I've often pictured that same sort of thing in my mind. And I would probably have some uh, pushback from theologians and scholars, but when I try to visualize how it was that God chose Abraham to be the father of the nation of Israel and the father of the faith that would become Israel and our salvation through Jesus, it's easy for me to just picture God lighting up all the phone lines in uh, the place where Abraham lived and uh, nobody's answering. Some people don't even hear it ringing. They're so wrapped up in what they're doing, they don't even hear it ringing and they just walk by. And then others hear, but assume that it's not their problem, and they ignore. And then others think about answering, and then they realize that they've got too much going on. Uh, they got a train to catch, whatever, and they're just not interested in having their lives disrupted by this, this particular thing. And then there's the one who answers. And, you know, maybe they hang up as soon as they realize it's just a joke. Maybe not. Maybe something else happens. This is how I think of Abraham becoming the father of what would be Israel and the father even of our faith through Christ Jesus. So this nation Israel is a chosen people. 
the book of Genesis describes the beginnings of this nation called Israel. And uh, then we move into a place where this nation called Israel becomes enslaved by the Egyptians, and then they're delivered, and then they become a literal nation, that is to say, uh, a land and people group. And uh, always there is this idea that they are God's chosen people. And what's sort of funny and sad is that it depends on who you talk to, what it means to be saved people, or I mean chosen people. <laughs> chosen people doesn't necessarily mean that God chose you because you were somehow genetically better or somehow ethnically better for whatever purposes God's had, God has for you. Um, it doesn't seem to indicate in Scripture in any way that God chose the people who would be called Israel because they were better in some way. In fact, in the spirit of what I said earlier about getting to know the way God operates, the personality of God, I think it's fair to say that God probably picked the people that he picked because they were the least likely so often in Scripture, God chooses people who are not likely to be able to pull something off in and of their own strengths and gifts. And uh, they are people like Gideon, who was the least, he said, among his tribe. And uh, people like Moses, who stammered or something and didn't think God should use him. People like the Apostle Paul, who were in opposition to God in the way that he worked through Jesus. And, and there are countless stories like that. People like David, who, who leads the kingdom to its greatness, but he is this radically flawed person. God always uses people who are kind of incapable of making great things happen in and of themselves, at least great things as God identifies them. And why would God do that? I believe it's really very simple. God does that so that God will be glorified, so that God's work will be done according to God's means and ways. And uh, in that respect, God not only gets the credit, which I don't think God vainly seeks, but God also gets to see things implemented the way that God knows will work best. Of course, we always manage to mess it up, don't we? I guess that's why we need salvation. But through this people group, there is this line of succession where God is in a constant relationship with this people group, and it is described vividly for us in Scripture so that we can see this parade of flawed individuals who somehow turn out to honor God and fulfill God's wishes and then somehow turn away from God, suffer the consequences so that they can be delivered by God and they can repent and turn again in faith to God. And we see this pattern over and over in the Old Testament, and we see it one more time in the New Testament, but then it takes a twist. And the twist is Jesus. And by the way, Jesus, we're beholden to the Israelites for, because it was through them that we got Jesus. Uh, God could have given our Savior any people group to uh, be born amongst, but where does God bring us the ultimate salvation through Jesus Christ, through the people called Israel, the ones he's already invested so much in, the ones that he has this unique and wonderful covenant with. 
And this is why we should never disrespect the, the Jewish people. We should love them and care for them. While they may not have accepted Christ as uh, Jesus as their Christ, they nonetheless are looking for the same things that we are. And God has special favor for them and special plans for them. And no doubt one day we will stand together with many Jews and give glory to God as God sits on the throne before us. And so... In this sense, this nation is vital to the salvation of the world. Then we have the New Testament variant. And the New Testament variant tells us that through Israel, Jesus was born. And Jesus came to provide for us the ultimate solution to the problem of sin, which we talked about a few weeks ago. And the problem of sin will not go away, and we cannot make it go away in and of our own strengths. It simply isn't that kind of thing. It's something that requires our repentance and God's deliverance. And Jesus is the source of that deliverance. Now, where does this leave us in our New Testament context? Ultimately, we recognize that we need saving. Ultimately, we recognize that without a deliverer, without a rescuer, without a savior, we are lost. And therefore, we have a means of deliverance that we must seek. For the Old Testament people, the deliverance from the consequences of sin for the punishment that was rightly deserved for sin was found in the sacrifices of animals in the temple or in the tabernacle. In the New Testament, we understand that Jesus has set Jesus' self up. Jesus has set himself up as the end of the sacrificial system. He has said, I am the Lamb of God. He has said in the Last Supper that this is my body. And it's a sign of a new covenant that indicates that my broken body and my shed blood are now the way of salvation. And in the same way Jesus is saying to the people, in other words, you consume the lamb like they did on the night of the Passover. And uh, you spread the blood on the doorposts just as they did on the night of the Passover. And you will have a passing of God's wrath that you justly deserve. And the passing will come because of Jesus's body and Jesus's blood. And the question then that we want to ask in a theological sense is, is exactly how does that work? And the answer is, well, it's kind of a mystery, but we can understand it in a certain way. It is as though we are dearly loved by God, and God dearly desires to save us. But in order for God to be just, the salvation has to cost God something. And what can God give other than this son? God gives the most precious part of God's self to the cause of our salvation. Now, why would God do that? Well, we talked about that in the covering of grace, because God loves us and God wants us in relationship with God. But why would God not find a different way? If God is all powerful and supreme, then why can't God say, well, I'm just going to cancel the rules? And that's because that's what people would do. 
But God is supremely just, supremely holy, and therefore God can't violate those principles in a way that's so easy for humanity to do. And so what does God do? God takes his sinless son, who never denied God, who never resisted God in any way, whose sin didn't exist. There was no sin in Jesus. And this doesn't mean he was perfect. It doesn't mean he didn't have B.O. on a bad day or anything. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to be facetious. I'm just saying that, that I've seen all sorts of representations of a sinless Savior that make him out to be something that I really doubt seriously that he was. I believe he laughed with his friends. I believe that he was uh, not a, you know, for example, he was accused of being a drunkard because of the kind of people he hang, hung out with, and apparently the way they acted when they were hanging out together. And I don't know about you, but it's been a few different times in my life, especially when I was a teenager and a young man, when I got accused of being drunk. When really it was just being silly. I hadn't drop of alcohol in me, but I was just giddy and happy and silly. And people said, "My gosh, what is your trouble? What's wrong with you?" And I was, "I'm happy. You know, I'm just feeling good." And so, you know, Jesus got accused of being drunk. Jesus got accused of all sorts of things. But the reality is, is whatever he was doing, whether it literally involved behaviors that the people didn't approve of, he never did anything God wouldn't approve of. He understood God and he never did anything that God would disapprove of. And this is for us an example, but it is also impossible for us. And this is why Jesus, being the only one who never deserved punishment for disrespecting God and, uh, and uh, turning away from God, becomes the only one who can purchase our freedom. Because now God's own son is going to say, Father, they deserve the punishment. You and I both know that. But your justice can be satisfied if you give me their punishment and let me carry the weight of their sin for a time so that they can all be saved. And the Father agrees. Now, I heard it put this way a long time ago, and I don't know how good this story is going to tell these days, but a long time ago I heard it said this way, that there was this once upon a time a uh, a little island in the middle of the Pacific where no white man had ever set foot, where people had lived in peace and harmony amongst themselves. And and uh, there was a noble king who led them, and they were all happy, and there was no discord and no crime and no difficulty in their living. It all worked beautifully. And then some white men landed on their island for a while, and they taught the people some things that they'd never known before. And these behaviors created discord in the community. And these behaviors led to greed and lust and various other forms of, of evil. And then the white men left, you know, they got their, they got their rescue boat and they left. And then this people in this island were never the same. And so the king finally being wise and just said, okay, you know, since this disharmony now exists among us, I'm going to establish certain rules and there will be punishments so that you will obey the rules because punishment always accompanies rules. Otherwise, rules have no particular consequence and therefore there's no motivation to obey them. And so the king says, look, 
if you break any of these rules that create discord and pain amongst the people, you will be taken to the center of our village green and you will be whipped within an inch of your life with a bamboo pole. And again, this was something the king didn't want to do to the people, but this was the only way to assure that the rules would be obeyed for the sake of their, of their greater good. And lo and behold, one of the first people to violate the king's rule was the king's elderly mother. And she was caught red-handed. She was caught in the act. And so the king, being just, had to punish her. But he knew that if she were beaten severely with a bamboo rod, she would surely die. And he loved his mother. So what was the king to do? Well, the king took off his arraignment, his gown and his outer garment, and bore his back and went into the center of the village green and took upon himself the punishment that he had decreed for his mother and all of those who disobeyed. And so his justice was satisfied, but he took a punishment his mother could not take and survive, and she was redeemed by his sacrifice. And this is kind of the way we need to think about what Jesus has done. He has taken upon himself a punishment. Now, how does the salvation work? Well, is his death on the cross the thing? I mean, you know, people die. People even take punishments that aren't theirs to take for someone else. Bonhoeffer, uh, uh, the priest named Kolb, um, the uh, Tale of Two Cities, you know, and, and, you know, it's not uncommon for people to take a punishment they didn't deserve for the sake of someone else. It's not uncommon for someone to lay their life down for another. And so what did Jesus do? Was it just his dying on the cross, which was certainly terrible? Or was there more to it? Was it that he died and then descended to hell and in that way suffered the same separation from God that we call hell that would come to all of us if not for redemption? Did he, who had never been separated from his father and his spirit, he who had always been in union with God in the Father and the Spirit, this triune God, this Trinity, he who had never known separation from God, did he go it alone for a little while and bear upon himself what he could not possibly imagine so that we wouldn't have to bear something we could not possibly survive? How often do you see that God is at work in your life and present in your life, even when you're not paying attention? How often have you seen how God is at work and present in your life and you don't even care? You see it in others, if not in yourself, don't you? God is always with us. God is always making a way of deliverance and salvation, even when we're not asking. And more often than not, God is delivering us with miracles we didn't ask for, even while we're busy pestering God about the things we want and feel that we need. Can you imagine that Jesus took separation from God upon himself so that we wouldn't have to because we couldn't bear it? I wonder. I wonder. And so how does salvation work? This is what Jesus did for us. He gave God justification for saving us. In other words, 
Jesus went to God and said, Lord, Father in heaven, save them because I have taken their punishment in their place. And God said, I can justify saving them because you have done this, my son, and so I will. And we received the salvation by accepting that gift from Jesus. Why are we beholden to Jesus? Why do we love Jesus so much? Why do people worship because they can't help it? Why do people seem, seem to sing love songs to Jesus that almost sound like secular love songs? Because when you begin to understand the incredible love that was given to you, that saved you, you know, you've seen the stories about people who have uh, saved someone's life and then that person says, well, now I'm your slave, your servant forever because you've saved my life, you know. Well, that's all kind of cute and amusing and it makes for a great episode of I Dream of Genie or something. But, you know, what about the reality that our Lord Jesus saved us from hell and death and restored us into a relationship with God that was lost for us through sin. Do we owe utter obedience and commitment to Him? His salvation requires our worship and our commitment and obedience. Well, I hope this lesson has been a blessing to you and that you've picked up a few pointers and, uh, if nothing else, had a reason to, uh, to become more dedicated and devoted to God, that, that God has spoken through this lesson. Um, as always, I invite you to make this a regular stop on your week-long journey with the Lord. And uh, as always, I urge you to not make it the only stop on your journey with the Lord. If I'm traveling with you somewhere, then I pray your safety and I pray your peace and, and well-being in the place where you become, uh, where you end up. And uh, when you come home, I pray that you will find love and acceptance and joy. If you're not part of a church somewhere, please be a part of a church. If you live or, or uh, commute in this area of southwest Indiana where Jasper is, not far from Evansville, not far from Louisville, Kentucky, not far from Terre Haute, and not far from Indianapolis and Bloomington, if you're around here somewhere and you want to come to church at Jasper and go to Shiloh United Methodist, we'd so so be so be so be, little, little, be so glad to see you even if I can't say it without tripping over my tongue and I really hope you'll come I hope you'll come if not here to some church and I get it there aren't always churches that feel right to you because of a variety of reasons so if you go to a church and it doesn't feel like the right place for you be kind to them and then go where you feel welcome, where you feel as though you can receive the food that comes only from the Holy Spirit. Go where you can join others in genuine commitment to Christ, in obedience and love, and to serve. These are the kinds of churches I hope you look for. But be a part of a church. And now, as we get ready to go and finish today's lessons, I want to share with you from uh, Emily Dickinson, who said, Savior. I've no one else to tell, and so I trouble thee. I am the one forgot thee so. 
dost thou remember me? Nor for myself I came so far that were the little load I brought thee the imperial heart. I had not strength to hold. The heart I carried in my own till mine too heavy grew. Yet strangest, heavier sense it went. Is it too large for you? Well, I don't know if I read that as uh, exactly the right meter that it was written, but you know what she's saying there, don't you? I have so much guilt and shame. I have so much regret over my, my sin nature, my deep resentment towards God that comes out whenever God doesn't give me what I want and expects more from me than I want to give. And I hold all of that. And it's like a heavy weight that makes me feel like I could succumb to it and be drowned by it. And then I know I need someone to save me. I need someone to lift this burden of my guilt and sin and shame from me. And the question that Emily Dickinson asks is, Lord, is that weight too big for you? And the answer is no. No, he took it upon himself already. All we have to do is release it. Do you want to be saved today? Then say, Lord, I'm a sinner and I'm sorry. I don't ever want to live this way again. And I know that without your birth in the spirit, without your new life in me, I can't win this battle with sin and death. But if I let you have my heart and if I give my repentance to you and my sorrow and grief to you, you will comfort me and you will restore me and rebuild me. Because of Christ, you have found justification to make in me a clean heart and to make me new. Oh, thank you, God. Thank you for listening. Thank you for believing. Give thanks to God and worship as though you can't help it. God bless you. Goodbye. Mm -hmm.